Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Elena Niedu. Elena is a PhD student at Roma Tre University, uh, and we're together at the TensorFlow Developer Summit where she gave a talk yesterday. Elena, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. <laughs> Thank you, Sam. Awesome, I'm really looking forward to diving into uh, this conversation with you. I had a chance to catch your presentation yesterday, which was about the project you worked on in codice ratio. Yes, in codice ratio. In codice ratio. Um, my Italian is very rusty. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Uh, it's actually Latin, so. Okay, okay. So my Latin is non-existent. <laughs> <laughs> non-existent at all. Uh, we'll be diving into that, but uh, to kind of get us started, I'd really love to hear about your background and what got you interested in starting to work in machine learning and AI. I began working uh, with machine learning exactly when I started working at the project uh, because uh, I have studied computer science at university, uh, and, but I was more like operations-oriented, uh, systems-oriented, and very much I didn't think I would join a PhD or something like that. And But then uh, when I was searching uh, for a thesis, for my master thesis, uh, then this project came up. And it was very it was very interesting to me because since it's about applying machine learning to the context of historical documents, uh, and I had somewhat a background in classical studies in high school, uh, then it it seemed to me like it was the perfect match for me, like because it it joined two of my two of my passions, two of my interests, and also it might have been for me the very last chance, or so I thought. Uh, to learn something about machine learning because then I suppose I was supposed to go work somewhere and then I, I just said to me, well, let's give it a shot. <laughs> okay, awesome, awesome. So the, the project that you're working on, uh, describe the, the project for us. What's the, what's the ultimate challenge? So uh, we're used to think of big data as something that happens in the web. So very large amounts of data we produce every day. It's talk every one of us has heard at least one time in their life. But something that we sometimes fail to consider is that there is lots of historical precious information that is stored in physical archives, like in literal paper and something like that. And in Rome and in the whole of Italy and the whole of the world, really, there is lots of huge archives that mostly have are still undiscovered uh, because of their size and because they're physical, they're not on a web. And so the goal of the Encodice Ratio project is to make these uh, archives accessible. Uh, and in particular, the Vatican, we're working on manuscripts inside of a Vatican secret archive. Now, uh, I feel one, like if it's, it's called the secret archive, we shouldn't be working <laughs> on these. <laughs> no, this is this is. I, I, I'm I'm glad you're you're saying this because this is a common misconception even with Italians. Okay. Uh, because the secret in Vatican secret archive does not stand for confidential, but it comes from the Latin origin of the word secretum. Uh, okay. Uh, which does not mean confidential, it rather means private or separate, because the okay. Vatican Secret Archive is a private, private property of the Pope. Okay. 
So each pope inherits the archive that is the center of all the administration, of all the archived um, administration of the church. So the, the challenge is to uh, do what with the documents in this archive? Uh, well, uh, the leader of the project, Professor Merialdo, who is also my PhD advisor, uh, he's an expert in knowledge extraction uh, from web sources. And so the project precisely started because he was wondering whether we could apply the same techniques to the domain of historical documents. And so, yeah, the goal would be to build a knowledge base, uh, a historical knowledge base out of the documents. But the very first challenge you're facing when you want to do that is that uh, most, of, most of these documents aren't digitized. And if they are digitized, uh, they're digitized as images, they're scans. And uh, for those that are printed, you can use traditional OCR, and then it, it usually just works. Uh, but then there is um, more ancient documents uh, that pre-exist the invention of the printing press, for example, and they are by necessity handwritten. And so that's, uh, that's where the classical OCR fails, and you have to think of something more, um, more, like more, more smarter, I guess, or... It's a, it's a greater challenge than simple OCR. Mm -hmm. And so was this project already in existence and ongoing when you joined it or? Uh... It was it was starting. Okay. Like, uh, there was, I, I, I was actually dragged into the project because one friend of mine had, uh, had already done his master thesis and he was the very first person to begin the code base of Incodice Ratio. Okay. Ciao Andrea. <laughs> and, <laughs> And he told me, look, this project is great. You should join it. Uh, and so there was, it was just starting. And then I, I, I followed up on, on his work. And, but yeah, it was about two years ago now. Mm -hmm. And the project had started for like six months okay. or so. And so to provide some context on the, the size of the secret but not secret archive, <laughs> Um, I've seen a couple of comparisons, one to yeah. the Panama Canal, the other to Mount Everest. <laughs> yes. Uh, what are those? Well, uh, that's, that's to give a hint of the scale. And that's like uh, Professor Maiorino, who works at the Vatican Secret Archive. He likes to say that if we were, if we were to take each shelving of the Vatican Secret Archive and put it one next to the other, uh, we could cover the the length of the Panama Canal. It's 85 kilometers of linear shelving. Mm. So it's a very large collection. It's and it's a very varied collection. Like you have documents from from China, from and Asia in general, from of course from from Europe, from the Americas and Africa and so on. And it, they span centuries. Like there is documents as old as the ninth century, okay, and up to this day, really, because the the archive is is still active. They are still collecting uh, documents that other uh, institution inside of the Holy See uh, don't need anymore. Because uh, that's how it works. Uh, for example, suppose there is a chancery somewhere in the world that belongs to the Holy See, 
and when they uh, have to archive their files because they are not using them anymore, they send that to the they send in them to the Vatican Secret Archive. So not only it's eighty five kilometers, it's growing. Okay. <laughs> interesting, interesting. And so, are you? Is this project focused on a particular subset of the documents, or are you <coughs> kind of randomly picking them, or? Right now, we're focusing on medieval manuscripts. Okay. Uh, because which sounds like a pretty broad subset. <laughs> yes, it's still a pretty broad <laughs> subset, but it allows for some consistency. Mm -hmm. And in particular, we're working on a collection that is called the Vatican Registers. Okay. And the Vatican Registers, uh, they record every letter that the Pope sent in an official way. So every time the Pope was to send a letter, Mm -hmm. Of course, you would write it. And before it was sent, it was copied inside of the Vatican registers so that uh, there was a proof that that letter was sent and also people could read it uh, if they needed to because uh, before there was canon law, uh, what the, the Pope actually said in letters was, was the law, acted as law itself. And so it was important to scholars, uh, to law scholars back then, like in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a subset subset of documents we're working with. But our goal is not just to um, not just to transcribe that, but to create a methodology and to create a way that so that if tomorrow we were to change documents, uh, the documents we're focusing on, we could just reapply the same techniques and get similar results. Uh, so you said that your this project was really your first introduction to machine learning, and also the project <laughs> was just getting started uh, <laughs> as you joined it. It sounds like sounds like a uh, a lot to figure out <laughs> for someone <laughs> new to machine learning. Maybe can you share a little bit about uh, how you got started and and how the project has evolved? Um, well, uh, as I mentioned, the project didn't start as a necessarily as a machine learning project. Mm -hmm. It started as a knowledge discovery project in general. Uh, and transcription in the beginning, uh, transcription wasn't even the main focus. Okay. Okay. They thought that since OCR is a solved problem, well, we will just OCR the documents <laughs> and then and then we'll see. And then we found out that that was just not the case and we needed something that was smart, that, that helped us really transcribe what was there because it was it was not trivial at all and in the beginning then so uh, what we did was uh, we went to experts in reading ancient writing they're called paleographers and they we asked them like do you think this is possible and they were like no no way <laughs> i have studied years to do that <laughs> no way a computer that do that can do that uh, and then the second problem was that we then, so we were searching for um, how other people solved our own problem because we didn't think we were the first to, you know, to find this, this kind of issue. And what we found out is that many systems that work also very well, but they require a massive amount of annotations. So, for example, uh, say you want to have a good transcription for a page, then you have to provide like at least 1,000, 3,000, 10,000 lines carefully annotated. And since this, this kind of writing can be very hard to read, uh, even when paleographers know of these tools, they get very discouraged because mm. they say, 
okay, it's, it's not cost effective for me. Why do I have to give you like 1000 lines that is months of my, my work, even years, if, if it's very hard to do, uh, just to have a transcription of a particular document. It's not, it's not scalable. So the first thing we found out, it was that the, the main issue was scalability. And so that's our, one of our greatest concerns. And so what, what is an example of one of these more classical techniques that requires that much annotation? And is it the same kind of annotation that we, we do on the machine learning type of a context? Yes, but uh, yes. But usually you can use unskilled workers to do that. For example, you put uh, work on Amazon Mechanical Turk, Crowdflower, or you name it. It's usually easy tasks. For example, the one, the one that you're solving when you're doing captures. So like mm -hmm. mark the boxes that have stop signs in it or mark the boxes that have uh, pedestrian crossing or something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, and, and it's easy and everybody can solve it because it's trivial or uh, is there a cut in here? Yes, no. Mm -hmm. But when, when, when we're looking at this kind of manuscripts, uh, like I said, you need an expert. And experts are expensive both in the literal sense, that's time-wise, because you need time to get it done. And there is people who do that. For example, there is the uh, Read project. They allow you, if you send them enough annotation, they will train their own system and let you have the transcription for following parts and then iteratively improve on that. Mm -hmm. But uh, even when, when we talked about, uh, about that with, for her, with paleographers, they told us, yes, we know of that system, but we just don't use it because sometimes it's, it's not worth our time. We, we will just do it ourselves if, if that's the amount of work we're supposed to do. So and and it's and I, I don't mean to say it's it's not useful because it can be useful for example for the end goal of uh, transcribing entire collections but you have to be investing invested in doing that and of, more often than not maybe historians are are focused on finding a particular occurrence and they don't want to they don't want all the rest of the hassle. And so in this project, what I'm imagining, one of the big challenges is still annotations and having some kind of labeled data set. Yes. How did you go about that? I feel it's a challenge for many machine learning practitioners uh, because, of course, when, when, it's, when it's about uh, business data, maybe, maybe, maybe you're, you're an industry and you already have that data and you just have, it's, it's there and you just have to use it. But for many other fields, and especially in the humanities, there is no such thing. And so what we decided to do was not to annotate by line or by word, but to annotate single characters, because, of course, the size of the alphabet is way smaller than the size of the vocabulary. And also it suffers way less of, uh, uh, of, a skew, of the skew of the distribution. Uh, what I mean by that is that if you consider the whole like uh, 100 pages of text, uh, it, it, could, it, it could be Latin, but it could also be English. What you will find out is that there is a very few words that occur an enormous amount of times. Mm -hmm. And then most of the words, they just occur like 10 to 30 times. And they are the same words you, you would be more interested in recognizing. Because right. maybe there are, there are verbs, they are names, 
and so on. You like you don't care about conjunctions or right. the uh, and and so on. And that is why the systems require lots of data okay. because you you need uh, 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 a good amount of each relevant example. But letters, on the other hand, but are more distributed. Yeah, more letters distributed. Are, are more even distributed. Of course, for example, vowel in Italian and Latin as well, vowels will occur more frequently right. than consonants. But still, it's something you can get over with. And so that's that's what we... And also that enabled us to uh, create a, a system that was very much like the CAPTCHA solving system. Mm -hmm. So we made our own custom crowdsourcing platform. Uh, where the the workers were shown an image of a word, and so and then on the on the upper side they were shown some positive examples of symbols that they were supposed to recognize inside of that word, mm -hmm. without even, in theory, without even having knowledge of the symbol they were searching for, and mm -hmm. then they were asked to mark by clicking inside of the image, uh, the areas that corresponded to the example they were provided. And one question that I had was, were they annotating on a letter-by-letter letter basis or a stroke or a subset of a letter basis? Okay. I thought I saw something that suggested it was done at the stroke level and then you were combining strokes to form letters. Yes, of course. Uh, since we couldn't know before which parts of the word would correspond to which letter, because mm -hmm. otherwise we would already have transcription um, <laughs> by definition, uh, then we use a system that can over-segment a word in its strokes. So, for example, maybe you have an M and the system will segment it into three sticks. And so if, if workers were asked to mark an M, they would just click on the three sticks okay. and then submit their answer. A bit, like, a bit like what you do when you have an image segmented into small squares and you click on the squares. Pretty much the same principle, a bit more fine grade. And so in this case, you created this uh, labeling interface, and as opposed to using our mechanical turkeys, <laughs> you, used, uh, you used what? Resource. Um, so <laughs> uh, in, in Italy, it's not that easy to access to mechanical turk or crowdsourcing platform mm -hmm. in general. Uh, and also, uh, high school students have to uh, work a certain amount of time in the last three years of their high school. Uh, and so they join projects uh, where they are supposed to do works that are related to their kind of studies. For example, uh, high school students, like I was myself in uh, uh, classical studies, maybe they will go to museum and help tourists or something like that. Or uh, those that are more science-oriented, they might go somewhere else or to laboratories or industry, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so uh, thanks to high school teacher Marika Shone, we were able to present our project, uh, our, our crowdsourcing platform, as a working platform for uh, high school students. And also, they were given a few lessons about a few lessons about uh, image processing, machine learning, and also paleography. And they were able to visit the university. Sometimes they worked for us at the university at our, our labs. And some, but the good thing about that, the good thing about that was that they could also work from home. And so they, they were very flexible on when and how to work. And that was an advantage that also the professor, the their teachers liked. Because mm -hmm. sometimes uh, to do the work part, you have to skip the school part. And so, of course, teachers are not very happy about that. 
Uh, and in that way, they could like manage their own time okay. and see a different way of working in some right. way. So you have these crowdsourced annotations that you collected from the high school students. Uh, how many or how, what was the volume of uh, so annotations? Uh, the annotations, there are more than 40,000 annotations uh, over about 30 classes. 30, okay, so the 30 classes, classes are letters approximately. Yes. And, uh, and so you 40,000 letter examples of letters. Yes, of course, not by character. Each single, each we have about, depending on, of course, depending on distribution of the characters, uh, but we have about uh, 1,000, 1,000. 500 examples per character. Mm -hmm. So that's where the 40,000 comes from. Often when you're working with uh, crowdsourced data, you'll do things like you'll have multiple workers uh, annotate the same thing and do yes. like quorums or things like that. Did you do anything like that? Or was there um, a higher level of trust that you'd established with this group that allowed you to skip that kind of thing? Uh, we experimented with different uh, levels of, like, we, we just had a threshold. So, for okay. example, uh, we considered good uh, things that were voted more than three times okay, or five times. We experimented with different thresholds. And, uh, or, for example, we realized that some characters were more challenging than others, and we didn't want the students to spend too much time on too easy characters, but just, uh, or maybe there were characters that occurred less. And so, uh, in the case of characters that occurred less, maybe the threshold was lower, mm -hmm. or characters that were very easy, that we saw the student didn't get them wrong so often. And in some other cases, we uh, it was uh, it was not as as clear. Maybe mm -hmm. it was it was harder for them to to find them instead of a word and so on. And then so the threshold was higher. And so you collected this training data, presumably to train some kind of model. What mm -hmm. kind of model uh, did you train, and how did you arrive at that uh, model? So uh, we in the end settled for a convolutional neural network, uh, which is pretty standard considering image processing tasks. Uh, but we wanted to like build incrementally because we didn't want to like we could have just downloaded one mod one big model, but mm -hmm. we knew our dataset wasn't that big, and it wasn't as hard as ImageNet. Okay, mm -hmm. like recognizing single characters is is more like NIST than it is ImageNet, mm -hmm. and but at the same time we we wanted something that really fitted our data, so we just started simple, like very basic logistic regression, <laughs> mm -hmm. and and then improved from that to see at each step how better we were doing and why. And so when you say at each step, meaning at each kind of iteration of the modeling step or? Yes, we would go about a cycle of, for example, choosing, first of all, choosing a type of uh, network of architecture in general, uh, and then seeing, seeing just as it was, seeing how, it, how good it did. And then, for example, trying to change hyperparameters inside of that model, and then we would try to make it more complex. Uh, so, for example, if it was a feed-forward network, then we would just start easy one through layers, and then and then tune the hyperparameter inside of those. And then, uh, when we were sure that we wouldn't get we couldn't get better, we would choose the best configuration, and then maybe add the layer, remove a layer, and see, for example, because there is a 
um, like at, at some point you won't improve anymore mm-hmm. because the model has limitations. And so uh, we did that for uh, for a certain number of times. So starting starting with the uh, uh, feed forward and then moving to convolutional. Uh, and we're so we're here at the TensorFlow event. Presumably, you're using TensorFlow to yes. do all of this. <laughs> uh, what was that experience like? Well, it uh, it could be it could be challenging because uh, there were like uh, there were so many things, so many ways you could do the same thing, and no one was necessarily better than the other. Mm-hmm. And for a beginner, that can be like a bit scary. But of course, I wasn't alone because I was a beginner, but there was there was somebody who was not that also directed the whole process of building the network. That was Simone Scardapane, who is also a Google developer expert okay. in machine learning. And so we were together in this and I was guided like I didn't do it all by myself. Of course, I did my fair share of studying of, of working on it. But and yeah. so which, uh, which APIs did you use for... Okay, so the thing is, for example, we were very torn apart between Keras, <laughs> <laughs> between Keras and Pure TensorFlow because okay. uh, we loved Keras uh, for prototyping because it kept the it kept the code small and very readable, understandable, much object-like, mm-hmm. something you would you would like you're 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 familiar with maybe more familiar than other approaches. And but then at some point, for example, maybe TensorFlow had a new feature and Keras had to implement it in inside of and it was constantly lagging behind. Mm. And so, uh, well, before the integration, at least. And so uh, or maybe they said we're, we're now supporting a TensorBoard. And then, for example, it was true, but it was true only for a very restricted set of operations. Okay. Uh, and so, since we want, we sort of wanted to have it all. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and so maybe sometimes we would just, for example, prototype fast in Keras, and then when when we were pretty sure about the model that it wouldn't change much anymore, mm-hmm. we would move to pure TensorFlow. Okay. And was that was that process difficult or? <laughs> just tedious? Yeah, well, at some point, like TensorFlow introduces the high-level API layers. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really, it was pretty much straightforward because it was one-to-one, like syntax changed a little bit, but okay. not so much. And, but of course, it was, it was a hassle, like you, you constantly mm-hmm. have to do back and forth. Uh, and and yeah, so we the the so the last model we trained uh, the one that we are using right now, but we're trying to improve on. But so far, uh, was implemented in uh, layers and estimators. Uh, it was actually implemented in layers and estimators so that we could like take full advantage of TensorBoard and. Um, for example, at some point we wanted to try the deep dream technique to mm-hmm. generate images at each layer of the network to understand what was learned. Right. And that would we just couldn't do that in Keras. Because it hid too much of the internals yes. from you. And so this model, you've got this uh, CNN that's basically classifying these characters within the words within these documents. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the broader kind of pipeline that that fits into? Okay. Of course, since we have this, 
we know, we recognize that uh, recognizing character is a limitation because, of course, then you have to provide the network with characters. So there is a, uh, a whole uh, image processing step before the actual classification uh, so that we can provide the network with actual characters. Or maybe not, and because that's the point. When you get to a word, it's pretty easy to segment into words. Then you get to a word and then... Uh, everything is written all together. It's very like it's cursive script. Mm -hmm. So each word starts when each character starts when the other ends, uh, and it can be very tricky to understand where a uh, character starts and where a character ends. So we have a few like old school uh, computer vision heuristics that help us uh, cut these whole words into subshapes or like like if as if they were puzzle pieces in a okay. way. And then we combine these puzzle pieces together, like we we make the network classify them in isolation and in combination. So then and then the networks like has some confidence on on those on on those classification and can also has a special class that's supposed to represent uh, a wrong segmentation. And so it, the network can both tell you, according to my knowledge, this is an A, or it can tell you, no, that's not a character, drop it. Mm. So that, help us, that helps us prune the whole space of the possibility, which otherwise would be like very large, because we're, we're constantly combining mm -hmm. adjacent pieces of the puzzle that are parts of the word. Is it, is it like the... Is the segmentation is kind of like a sliding window kind of thing, or is it more the algorithm is producing distinct uh, segments, but it's noisy? Yeah, more like the second one. Okay. Uh, in in the beginning, we used a sliding window, but okay. it produced way too much noise. Yeah. And then you're very dependent on, for example, the stride you're moving at. So, right. uh, and you have you have you may have noise from other characters. In the in the background, in the sound, the sides, and so we we have this uh, this heuristic that basically uh, computes the higher uh, the higher contour and the lower contour of the characters, hmm. and uh, wherever there is a local minimum or a local maximum, because that's that's how the handwriting goes. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> and then we we're able to connect them, and we create. We create strokes okay. from the characters, so each each segment could be either an entire character or a part of a character. So then you have these. You kind of pass through the the first step in this pipeline is mm. passing through the segmentation step. Yes. And then for each of these segments, you're passing it on to your CNN yes. to tell you is it you know which of the thirty characters is it or mm -hmm. is it not a character? Exactly. And then at this point, you still may have some ambiguity because, for example, there is things you might not be able to solve. Um, consider, oh, well, this, this looks so much better if I can draw, but, <laughs> <laughs> but okay, consider when you have, for example, uh, one word we often use as an example uh, let's try and make this 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 imagination challenge. Okay, um, is anno a n n o. Now in this handwriting, uh, uh, the eyes have no dots on them. Okay. okay. Um, so uh, even though uh, so you you broke 
are not in two pieces with our segmentation. And so probably what you will get is A and then a series of sticks because right. they could either be I's or N's or M's. Okay. And then you get the O. Uh, but then again, for example, each of the sticks of the N's could be either I's. They could be all from, from, the, from the perspective of uh, character recognition Without, without having a further context, they could either be I's, mm -hmm. they could be N's, they could be M's mm -hmm. combined with I's. Uh, and all of these combinations are valid from the point of view uh, of uh, optical recognition of the visual right. features. Uh, but then again, of course, only one of them is correct, right? Uh, which is the double N. Uh, and so to know that, you need more context, and that context is the knowledge of the leading language. Mm -hmm. So that is why, uh, even even though uh, even though we have classification, uh, then we need to rank. We could have ambiguity on some words, and so we have to rank them, and we rank them according to a language model we build out of latent texts. Okay. So so they of course the language model picks the one that sounds more latent-ish. From your classifier, you produce kind of a list of the top N candidates, yes. and then you pass that to your language model to basically re reorder, re-rank them yes. based on the, the semantics or the context of the language. Exactly. And then that gives you your transcription, your transcribed word. Yes. Right? It gives us, well, it gives us a ranking of transcriptions. And so, yeah, the metrics we're using are not just correct or not correct, but also mm -hmm. how good were they ranked. Uh, on that note, how do you kind of evaluate the performance of the, the network? So, of course, uh, we evaluate the performance of the network on the single character recognition, but also we evaluate the performance of the pipeline as a whole uh, on at word level. So, uh, the network by itself has 94% average accuracy over 33 classes. And but then, of course, since there is ambiguity, or maybe sometimes the segmentation can go wrong, can go wrong, or since it's a very pipeline process, at each step you could introduce error, or also the network might be wrong. Uh, if the segmentation were perfect, so for example, if we didn't have that kind of ambiguity, we could get up to uh, eighty percent, eighty-five percent accuracy. And uh, what we actually have is about sixty-five percent perfect transcription, and then we get up to eighty percent if we consider minor spelling errors. Okay. So, for example, maybe an E was mistaken for a C, or mm -hmm. sometimes uh, since mm, convolutional neural networks are terrible at counting. Uh, you have like a double C or a double S, and so uh, double letters, which occur pretty often, uh, they might be uh, conflated into one single letter. Okay. So it sees like two S, and then it just say one S, because okay. it's twice the same symbol, but it's just, you know, it's it's when you're, you have an image of, cat, you, you want the classic network that tells you cat or dog, uh -huh. and it doesn't matter how many cats or dogs are in the picture. And it, it, it will not tell you it's not a cat if there is two cats. So the, the language model is only really ranking the candidates that you give it. It's not doing any, it can't do anything like, it's not like an embedding that's looking at possible words around the ones that you give it that would be more likely so as to like correct for these single letter spelling errors. Okay, so uh, so far uh, we experimented with uh, 
uh, error correction, but only in the form of uh, Viterbi, like of what? Um, a hidden Markov model, okay. something like that. And so using the Viterbi algorithm. But uh, the problem we have with that uh, is that sometimes it produces like it produces more candidate transcription and more noise. Okay. And so uh, maybe we can get uh, a few words uh, tra- corrected. But mm-hmm. then we greatly, uh, like, our, our ranking uh, gets worse mm-hmm. because there is so many things, there is more things that it has to consider. Okay. And the more, the more alternatives you produce, the more likely it is they sound like Latin. Mm-hmm. And so that language model would put them, like, on top, even though maybe they weren't co- okay. correct. So you mentioned that the character classifier is performing at, like, 94%. The pipeline at... 64 or 80, depending on whether you're counting these uh, Mm -hmm. spelling errors. How does that compare to the paleographers and their performance? Um, Well, of course, you you would have the the ground truth we're testing against was written by paleographers. So you have to assume that uh, Mm. like they, they are our 100%. One hundred percent. So that, that's that's the limit. We we do not expect, mm-hmm. of course, to do better. Uh, even though sometimes it actually occurred that uh, maybe paleographers made a very small spelling error, especially when they were dealing with many sticks. Mm-hmm. Because suppose you have like U M N I U and and etc. That's very very common sequences that can occur. Consider like numerus. It's like mm-hmm. Uh, it's all sticks, and sometimes they get it, they get the wrong count. Okay. <laughs> and so they, they they also make getting wrong, and sometimes it happened. Mm-hmm. But it's like I guess they 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 get five percent wrong, maybe. Okay. Okay. <laughs> At most. Maybe to to kind of wrap things up, what do you plan for the future with this project? What what are the next steps? Okay, so um, of course uh, we have collected some some more data. Uh, since then, but always at character level, just it changed the way we did it, so that it enabled us to keep uh, to be aware of uh, of the context characters were put in. And so, one very first step I would like to go into is um, trying to create a system that uh, both performs segmentation and recognition. So we we have done uh, recently a few tests and it turns out that this part of, you know, uh, handmade segmentation is one of the major bottlenecks we have. Mm. So it, we high we so right now we depend highly on how much good how good we can do mm-hmm. uh, with the segmentation. Uh, and so maybe to to train a segmentator could be interesting. And see and see what happens. Maybe maybe it doesn't work, but it's mm-hmm. it's worth a try. And then, of course, our end goal uh, is to uh, move to sequence models uh, because there is things that otherwise we wouldn't be able to solve. Mm-hmm. Uh, like LSTMs, requires... RNNs, that kind yes, of thing. Yes, exactly. Or uh, anyways, uh, for example, uh, models that use attention. I don't know, like the captioning ones, okay. you know, to to see the problem of transcription as one of 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 captioning somehow. Okay. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And but for that, of course, you you need the line dataset, and and our 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 focus, you know, is on scalability, and that's why we would like to try generative models 
uh, to help us improve our, the data set that we have. So, for example, uh, we are able to reconstruct words from the annotation of the students. Uh, they are a bit noisy, but they still look pretty good, like they look like words. And then uh, if we were able to feed like a generative model and to uh, explore latent space and create slightly different versions of uh, the same words so that we could augment our data set. So, okay. And the character create, data set. Uh, combining, actually combining the character data set into creating words okay. and then augmenting those words. Oh, okay. And so creating very, uh, very realistic synthetic data set. Mm -hmm. So as, uh, as always, uh, you could uh, get a paleographer to do that, but we want to involve them uh, just, just what we like in the, oh, as always, you could, uh, like you could ask an expert to do that. Uh, but where our concern is scalability, so right. uh, we want to be as unsupervised as possible in this. Is part of this the way this could play out? Is you build the you have the model that does it at the character level, uh, and kind of gets good enough at that that you can generate some transcriptions, and then you can exactly. use those to train the line level exactly. model. Exactly. Okay. Oh, or maybe integrate, so maybe we generate some transcriptions, and then so the paleographer just have to say, okay, this is wrong, but this is right, right. and then a bit like Translator do right now with Google Translate, so mm -hmm. they, they give it to Google Translate, it does a so-and-so trans translation, mm -hmm. and then they just correct it, and, mm -hmm. and they, they go faster this way. Any, uh, any advice for folks that are kind of embarking on projects like this, <laughs> or just getting started and... Uh, well, just just don't be scared, because <laughs> because you can do it, and it's uh, like don't don't expect yourself to be to 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 be able to do that in in one day, but eventually, like going step by step, and it's it's at some point like if somebody asked me, uh, where where will you be one year from now, one year ago. And I wouldn't answer. I would be here. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, Elena, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.